This episode is brought to you by Vimeo, home to the world's best filmmakers. Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm Liz Nord. I'm Emily Buter. And I'm John Fusco. It's February 16th, 2017, and on this week's show, this year's most anticipated cameras, a new threat to net neutrality and online streaming, an indie filmmaker's Netflix show under fire and his refreshingly honest response, and as always, news you can use about new gear, upcoming deadlines, indie film releases, and Ask No Film School. Hello, everyone from downtown Brooklyn, New York, home of No Film School. As always, we're here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy making films. So we reported back in June about a big victory for filmmakers and anyone else creating content that might be distributed online regarding the preservation of the net neutrality rules set up under the Obama administration. In a nutshell, net neutrality is, quote, the principle that the company that connects you to the Internet does not get to control what you do on the Internet. The question at hand is whether or not your Internet service provider and other telecom companies have the power to control what you see and do online. Back then in June, a federal court upheld the rules after telecoms companies banded together to try to get them overturned. Now, these rules are threatened again. The new head of the Federal Communications Commission here in the U.S., Ajit Pai, who was appointed by Donald Trump, has already taken steps to dismantle the program. It's important to note that despite Trump's campaign promises to, quote, drain the swamp of corporate interests, Mr. Pai comes to the FCC from being a lawyer at Verizon, one of the main companies accused of violating net neutrality rules. Now, one of the first actions Pi has taken is to stop an investigation into Verizon, his former company, and other wireless providers for what are called zero rating practices, whereby they offer free streaming and other downloads of specific content that don't count against your data limits. You'd think that this would be a good thing for consumers because you get stuff you know, streaming for free, but it's thought to violate net neutrality because it gives preference to content created by that provider or its affiliates. That's a slippery slope, I tell you. Yeah, and Mr. Pai's ceasing of the investigation is only the first step towards deregulating the industry, which inevitably helps companies and hurts consumers when there's less oversight on what companies are doing. According to the New York Times, Mr. Pai hasn't yet rolled out a full plan for overhauling net neutrality rules, but this is a step in that direction, and I encourage all of us to keep our eyes on this because it's not one of the most well-covered stories among all the changes that are happening in U.S. government right now. But the control of online content is of paramount importance to filmmakers, especially as the Internet continues to evolve as the primary platform for our work to reach audiences. One of the cooler indie film career launching stories in recent years that we've also talked about on the show was of Justin Simeon and his film Dear White People, which won the director a special jury award for breakthrough talent at Sundance back in 2014. The film and its great reviews enticed Netflix, who ordered an original series based on its premise. The satirical film centers around a biracial student at a predominantly white Ivy League university, and it uses comedy to expose the intercultural and intercultural tensions that she and her African-American classmates face in the setting. So the show that is based on the film and has essentially the same setup isn't scheduled to broadcast until the end of April and in fact is still being written. But there's already a backlash and a call for a boycott from white people based on a 30 second teaser trailer that Netflix released last week. 
So I have to say, in researching the story, I watched the relatively innocuous clip that Netflix released on YouTube, and I made the mistake of reading some of the comments, which were just like a cesspool of misinformed insults to just about everyone of every race. It it wasn't necessarily white people hurling insults at black people and back and forth. It was like a whole mess of just negativity. I'm telling you, it's ugly, which is why I was especially impressed with the director's calm response to the haters in a series of tweets and an essay published last Saturday on Medium. He pointed out that neither the original film nor the series had any racist intentions and that any Google search will tell you that the film was widely reviewed when it came out and no one accused it of having ill intent or racist undertones. He addressed the same comments I mentioned on YouTube by describing a feeling from early in his film's release that I think many of us filmmakers can relate to. He says, I hadn't yet realized that poring over YouTube comments and measuring the dislike to like ratios on our trailers was killing me from the inside out. Every comment from someone who hadn't bothered to look at the materials or read the reviews in lieu of calling me a racist based on the film's title was like a tiny knife stab in the heart. The essay that he wrote on Medium is long and thoughtful and quite revealing in terms of his thought process in naming the series. Like, how did he even come up with the name Dear White People in the first place? Um, And I encourage you to read it. But I'll just share one statement from Simeon right now that was quoted in IndieWire, and I think it applies to any filmmaker. Shall we have trained actor John Fusco read the voice of Justin Simeon? I guess so. Uh, Let's see. All right. If facts and common sense cannot wake us up from our delusions and distorted ways of seeing, what can? Stories. Stories teach us empathy. They reveal to us ourselves and the skins of others. Our entire concept of reality is stories. So tell your story. Come out of the closet. Write your thesis. Make your film. But do it honestly. Tell the inconvenient truth. It is the only thing that has ever saved us. So while it was fun engaging the trolls, it's like shooting fish in a barrel. The harder thing is to listen and present what is. That's some integrity and some courage. So what exactly was in the trailer? As I said, it was pretty innocuous. It's just like a scene the like again and it's less than 30 seconds cuz there's also a like opener and closer and it's an African American student, the protagonist of the film, she's doing a radio show on campus. Um, and talking about Halloween and basically sort of making fun of white students who wear blackface for Halloween. But it doesn't really it's just kind of like fun and silly. It's not really like some big um, statement. Um, yeah. Another interesting thing about this is that um, Barry Jenkins of Moonlight will be directing one of the episodes. So I'm personally really excited to see this. And apparently Netflix gave uh, Simeon a lot of creative freedom. So it's very close to his original vision. Yeah, and I have to say also to Netflix's credit, in the same um, Medium essay that Simeon wrote, he talked about how supportive they've been because there are calls, again, not only to boycott the show, but to boycott Netflix altogether. And Netflix is like, we got your back, which I, I really, again, give them credit for because they are they're a corporation. They don't have to do that. So we've been covering the heck out of awards season, all leading up to the big show at the end of this month. One of the more significant celebrations happened this past weekend, the 70th British Academy Film Awards, or BAFTAs. There were no major surprises, with a single film taking Best Picture, Best Director, Best Cinematography, Best Leading Actress, and Best Original Music. Can you guess which it is? Hint, it rhymes with Baba Band, and some people have found it to be Baba Bland. Is it Star a Sheep? <laughs> One might say that. 
What is it? <laughs> <laughs> I'm confused. Star Wars Rogue One. Oh, a Star Wars history? That's There were some surprises in the BAFTA awards show, I guess you would say. One is that Star Wars Rogue One in Britain, in the great United Kingdom, is actually called a Star Wars history and not a Star Wars story. Two, Zoopolis is called Zootropolis. <laughs> Three, Moonlight was an original screenplay in the UK and not an adapted screenplay. And four... And Anya Taylor-Joy, am I saying her name right? Anya. Anya. Anya Taylor-Joy got beat out by Tom Holland for Breakthrough Star of 2016, their UK's Breakthrough Star of 2016, and Tom Holland was like Spider-Man and the Avengers, and Anya Taylor-Joy, Anya Taylor-Joy was like in The Witch and Split, and she's in what? What's the name of that movie? Uh, Thoroughbred. Thoroughbred, yeah. That's coming out. That's supposed to be very good. So, I don't know, UK. Someone's smoking something very weird over there. Anyway, the award for Outstanding British Film went to Ken Loach's I, Daniel Blake. Emily actually interviewed the writer of that film, Paul Laverty, when she saw it back at Cannes last year. That was far and away the best British film that came out, I think, probably in the past five years, if not the best film that came out last year altogether. Paul Laverty and Ken Loach have been working together for 20 years And when I spoke with Laverty, he told me that he and Loach are, quote, joined at the hip, which is makes a ton of sense because they both have a very dedicated interest in social realism. And they're known for their ability to dramatize it incredibly well. They bring the plight of the people to the fore. And that was what's so amazing about I, Daniel Blake, is that you got to know one character who was caught up in this really complicated, terrible bureaucracy. And you empathize deeply with him because you get to know him like like a friend or like a family member. And through this one man, you can understand the problems of an entire social class. So that's really the beauty of film. And I think that uh, Loach and Laverty are two of the best at this. So to create his characters, Laverty literally takes to the streets. And actually, right before I interviewed him, he told me the story that he had just stopped by a food bank in New York and talked to people and sort of canvassed and got to know people. So it's clear that this is the way he lives his life, but it's also the way he creates his art. A quote that I thought was incredible from him that he said to me was, if you're listening to people with respect, most people will tell you their life stories. And that's kind of a great rule of thumb. When it comes to writing his screenplays, he does this incredible research process that's really detailed. And I will read another quote from him that sort of details it. Quote, you don't copy a screenplay from the streets. What you do is almost like journalistic work. I've got to figure out what's going on. I've got to find out everything. I've got to join at the doors. A lot of writing a screenplay is actually about making connections. Then it's almost like things come into your lane. Once you got all this information, bit by bit, characters start growing in your mind. Laverty's process is so interesting and inspiring. You know, as a doc person, it really resonates. Like, that sounds like how we approach documentaries. One more shout out that I'd like to make before we move on from the BAFTAs is uh, Babak Anvari, who made Under the Shadow, which is a movie that me and Emily both highlighted as one of our favorite horror films in recent memory, won Best Emerging Writer, Director, Producer. They have that category sort of all lumped in together. So check out Under the Shadow. It's it's getting some, finally, some well-deserved recognition. Out from Under the Shadows, you might say? Indeed. You might say. Mm. So as mentioned, The Big Dance is coming up on February 26th, but did you know that the Academy has already honored some of the most innovative cameras, gear, and software of the year at its SciTech Awards last Saturday? Who won? Well, 
I didn't even know they had they had these, by the way. So it's kind of interesting. Are they associated with the academy? Mm-hmm. So it's, oh yeah, those are always like the little things they play in between, right? Where it's like these people were previously honored and. Well, I knew that they went like there were tech awards for people like for with special technical roles in the films, but I didn't know there were tech awards for gear. Oh, I see. Yeah, interesting. So this year, the top scientific and engineering award went to Ari for the pioneering design and engineering of the Super Thirty Five format Alexa digital camera system which, as V. Renee pointed out in our coverage of the event, has been by far the most popular camera among filmmakers and DPs for the past three years. Awards in the same category also went to Red Digital Cinema for its design and evolution of epic digital cinema cameras with upgradable full-frame image sensors. And by the way, we're going to feature on the site this week a shootout between the Ari and Red cameras, so that'll be fun to check out. Sony also got an award for the development of the F65 Cine Alta camera with its pioneering high-res imaging sensor, excellent dynamic range, and full 4K output. And finally, one went to Panavision and Sony for the conception and development of the groundbreaking Genesis digital motion picture camera. Speaking of top gear, no, not the TV show about cars, but rather some more gear news from this past week. What you got? Well, that was the best gear of 2016, and I am here to tell you what the customers of Zacuto thought was the most anticipated gear or specifically cameras of 2017. So Zacuto conducted a poll asking which camera folks are most excited about this year, and the clear winner was the Panasonic GH5. This isn't a surprise at all. We had a lot of excitement over here at No Film School among both writers and readers about the GH5 when it was announced. And the features, including internal 10-bit 422 recording, are indeed very exciting, especially considering the price of just under $2,000. Very approachable, very affordable. Yeah, I said that I would, you know, leave no film school and travel the world with this camera if I That's so romantic. It. Yeah, well, you know. Elope with a camera. You know me. <laughs> Next on the list was the FS7 Mark II, which we got to play with back in November, and we loved it. And the C700, which is probably out of most people's price points at this point, because it's $20,000, but it will be a really fun rental for very high-end DPs. And down at the bottom of the list, even below the disappointing 5D Mark IV, was the Nikon D5600, with only 4% of respondents marking it as their top choice. S-A-D exclamation point. Sad. Sad. So, unfortunately, this segues us into our next story, which, from Nikon's point of view, is quite depressing. So, yeah, in a story we published earlier this week, headlined, Nikon cancels cameras, reports losses, and crashes stock. That's a pretty ill-foreboding headline in itself. But here are the deets. Nikon stock crashed Tuesday more than 14%, which lost Nikon a billion dollars in market capitalization after their notice of extraordinary loss was released. After early retirement-based job reductions of more than 1,100 employees last November, this comes as more bad news for Nikon and has already led them to cancel their anticipated DL line of 4K, 1,000 frame per second, clean HDMI integrated lens cameras. This is bad news for filmmakers, not just because we want to see our supplies healthy, but because we want as many people possible in the fray coming out with great gear, and Nikon's woes make them less likely to be innovating in that motion space. Nikon should really have a much bigger footprint in motion, and with their current struggles, it's unlikely they'll be in the game anytime soon. This is really sad for me because as a still photographer, I have a Nikon from the 80s, um, and it really was you know, the mainstay for 50% of still photographers did use 
Nikon. Yeah, I mean, Nikon is known for being like the still photography camera, I think, even over Canon. And Canon just kind of moved into that market uh, between the 80s and the O's and just took over. And Nikon never really caught up. But this may be a good time to see if their vintage lens prices are dropping. Perhaps you can pick up a great set of vintage Nikors for a good price and use an adapter for your new GH5, and then you'll be off to the races exploring the world like John will do. As we've mentioned in previous shows, No Film School will soon be hiring a new (laughs) podcast editor. And we'll be right back after this break. You're putting videos out into the world, and chances are you need to collaborate to bring those videos to life. Fortunately, Vimeo has all new video review tools. Here's how they work. When you upload a rough cut to Vimeo, it gets its own private review page. You can share the page with as many people as you need, and you can leave time-coded notes anywhere on any frame of the video. Your feedback stays organized and secure. No more annoying email threads, no more confusing comments. Instead, everything you need to upload, review, and share videos all in one place. Vimeo, to learn about more features, Visit join.vimeo.com slash review. Welcome back. Hi. You've come back just in time for our weekly segment of Ask No Film School. This week, D, we don't know your first name, but it starts with a D. Let's say it's David. David, David Roberts asks, in a few days time, I'm going to be filming in a park next to a bridge. The problem is everything surrounding the bridge is quite open and we're going to mess the park up massively to look like a junkyard. What are the best guerrilla filmmaking tips for this situation? Liz, what do you have to say? Well, I should add that in, let's call him David's post, he mentions that his film is a gang war drama with a cast and crew of 14 and an 8 to 10 hour shoot day plan for the scene. So I'll start by saying that this is just about the opposite of what might be considered a guerrilla filmmaking situation, which our commenter Josh Zykowitz described as about being quick and using the real world that you find. There are some public filming situations where I would say it's better to ask forgiveness than permission, like, say, filming on public transportation where it might be a real hassle to get the transportation authorities on board, but you can easily jump on a train with one camera and possibly a light or audio person, grab your shots, and just as easily jump off if someone gives you problems. But in Dee's case, I have to agree with our commenters who discouraged him from thinking of this as a run-and-gun situation. Um, Josh Zeitkowitz went on to say... Quote, best case scenario, the police will kick you out before you're finished filming. Worst case scenario is getting arrested while kicking you out and being charged with littering, filming without a permit, trespassing, or disturbing the peace. He also went on to add that because this is a gang war scene, the really, really worst case scenario is that an officer sees you with a fake gun and fires. I mean, that shit's scary. So um, just to tie it into... My personal experience, once I was shooting a no-budget music video in the cliffs of San Francisco, which generally has pretty liberal policies, our producer didn't bother getting a permit because he thought no one would find us there, but guess what? There are people whose job is to patrol public property, and we got busted, just like you might in a park. It really sucked, but I can only imagine how much worse it would be if we had had like a lot of set dressing and a bigger cast and a bunch of equipment so to what deal hap- with. Wait, what happened to you? Did you get arrested, or did you spend... Three days in jail, or did they beat you? Or did you get tortured? I don't like to talk about it. Okay. No, it was fine, but it could have again been so much worse if there was a lot more moving parts involved. We got a warning because we were such a lightweight operation and could really just get out of there immediately. Mm. Um, Slap on the wrist. I liked that part. 
Um, now that we've talked about what not to do, here are some to-dos that I suggest for David or anyone else in his situation. So maybe this is obvious after everything I've just said, but do get permission. Even if you have to pay a small fee for park usage, this could end up saving you quite a bit of money in tickets or worse, court fees. Another benefit of getting permission is that those same people who might bust you would then be obligated to help you secure the space and answer any questions you might have about its use. A couple other tips in terms of filming outside in a low-budget production. Definitely make sure when you're scouting you investigate the power situation if you need to plug in any lights or other equipment because it might determine where in the park you need to shoot if there are outlets available or you might need to rent a generator to supply your own power. If you're only shooting with natural light, make sure you plan for a day when the weather is supposed to do what you want it to do and that you know when sunrise and sunset are. Also, I'd suggest gathering a much larger pool of volunteer PAs for that day than you might normally have on set. On one hand, you probably want to try to keep a lower profile when filming in public like that. But on the other hand, that's fairly impossible when attempting to film a trash-filled gang war drama. So there's just much more potential for chaos in this type of situation than on a closed and controlled set. So I suggest bringing a bunch of extra people, friends, you know, who can help crowd control from curious onlookers and quicker setup and cleanup and anything else that comes up. So good luck, David. Let us know how it goes. I hope you don't get arrested. And now on to some movies that are streaming and opening this week on video on demand, specifically on Netflix. On February 23rd, you can finally watch Sausage Party if you haven't seen it. This is one animated feature from last year that you won't find on the Academy Awards roster. We actually talked about how it deserves to be on it last year and whether it's time for the Oscars to create an adult animation category in addition to the animation category it already has. And I think that debate still holds true. There was a lot of adult animation that came out last year. And if you exclude something like Sausage Party, like but include other adult oriented animated films it kind of just doesn't make too much sense because sausage party was a pretty good movie here's my question though like just because it exists doesn't mean it's oscar worthy would you think if there was an adult animation category this film is oscar worthy i mean yeah i think like in the same way that moana is like oscar worthy for kids you know like there's nothing really i don't know i didn't see moana but (laughs) there's nothing i don't think too like powerful about that movie other than like it drove a lot of action figure sales and doll sales. The Rock is in it, so obviously it's extremely powerful. Yeah. Um, Sausage Party was powerful in its own right, though. It was uh, one of the most controversial movies, I think, to come out last year in that sense because it's just gratuitously disgusting. Um, It's entirely gross-eyed humor, so it's kind of comparable to South Park in that sense, but I'd say it's maybe even a little less subtle than South Park. Wow. Um, that being said, it's got an incredible cast featuring Kristen Wiig, Paul Rudd, Seth Rogen, Craig Robinson, Edward Norton, Danny McBride, Nick Kroll, Jonah Hill, Salma Hayek, Bill Hader, and Michael Sarah. So everyone is in this movie and they all play different types of food in a supermarket. <laughs> the main plot of the film is that one hot dog's entire world comes crashing down as he realizes that getting chosen and taken home by a human results not in salvation, like everyone in the supermarket thinks, but actually in terrible, gruesome death and consumption. So, you know, kind of a important story for our modern world. If you guys had to play food in a supermarket, what would you play? A corn on the cob. A uh, piece of spaghetti. <laughs> One piece. I love it. But they're, you know, they're hard when they're <laughs> still there. Just you stop. Know? Just stop there. <laughs> okay. 
if we're going to talk about gross out stuff, we would be remiss not to talk about a huge opener this week theatrically. It is A Cure for Wellness, directed by Gore Verbinski, who's making a return to horror after a slew of Johnny Depp movies. Literally every movie that Gore Verbinski has made since The Ring like stars Johnny Depp. Yeah, because Pirates of the Caribbean. Pirates, Pirates of the Caribbean, Rango, oh, Rango, The Lone Ranger, like all these movies star Johnny Depp. Oh, that's awesome. I only got the Pirates part, yep. so that's so cool. Super weird. So the last horror movie he directed was one that you most certainly have into your mind if you're me or anybody that grew up in the 90s in the form of a girl with long black hair coming out of a TV. And of course, that's The Ring in 2002. So I actually got to see A Cure for Wellness a couple weeks ago at a press screening. And it is, it's wild. I I am at a loss for words a little bit. It is wild. (laughs) It's five movies condensed into one, basically. And before I get into what that actually means, let me tell you what it's about on the surface. So it stars Dane DeHaan as an ambitious Wall Street executive who's sent to retrieve his company's CEO from an idyllic but mysterious wellness center at a remote location in the Swiss Alps. So when he gets there, he realizes that nothing is quite what it seems. In fact, there's something utterly dark and depraved lurking just beneath the veneer of paradise. So let me attempt to categorize this movie. So it's a fucked up fairy tale, first and foremost. It's a cerebral sci-fi. It's a body horror. And it's a drama. (laughs) It's so much more than that, too. Um, And as you can probably tell from this genre mashup, it's not the most cohesive story, but it's gripping as hell. And there is never a dull moment in this one. To tell you any more would be to potentially ruin an insane experience that has to be seen to be believed. So see it. Um, And in the meantime, I'll tell you about my conversation with the cinematographer, Bojan Bozelli, who's a longtime collaborator of Verbinski's. He shot The Ring. There are some epic shots in A Cure for Wellness, ranging from beautiful to grotesque to extremely technically complex. So I asked Bojan about my two favorite shots, and it turned out that one of them was the easiest to shoot and the other was one of the hardest to shoot. Here's Bojan on the easiest shot where the camera is mounted on a high-speed train, resulting in a breathtaking view of the Swiss Alps before we plunge into a pitch-black tunnel. It's very dramatic. It also serves as a metaphor for the film's journey from light to darkness. We just mounted the train. We were driving on a train with no passengers, but film crew, we were in pre-production. We we mounted the camera outside the window. Thank you for noticing the shot, because, yeah. And again, symbolically speaking, very simple, you know, very cheap and simple, but very effective shot. It happens, you know, many times. Sometimes, luckily, it works better than the other times. But this one, this one was definitely the winner in terms of emotional impact. And my, my sort of, I'm, I'm a believer that if you can achieve the image that speaks emotions in context of the story, I think you're fantastically. Yeah, you know, you know, good, done your job. The hardest shot involved 150 eels. Ew. Yes, precise timing and an accident in the sound department that made it into the movie. One of the hard shots to do, actually, by the way, is the one that when Mia Roth is in a, in a tub with the eels. And, and that shot is done, it's not fully ever done in the movie, but it's a, it's sort of, it's a push in from a wide shot of a tub into her close up and you're coming, craning over her to see the eels uh, all around her. I don't know, have you seen it? It's uh, incredible. And that was It's like a dream with, image. Yes, and it's complicated. It's so a real eels. Real eels, about 150 really? eels. Real eels, not with her, but with her 
you know, with her, uh, so cast double, I mean, cast body double, I mean, mm-hmm. aesthetics, and sudden segments of motion control by shooting her action first, then taking her out and adding. And then the one thing that was very difficult to get and was coming out of visual accidents, so to speak, but then we liked it and we tried to continue it, is that little glints in a tile when camera is moving forward towards towards the tub. It's the very beginning of the shot, about 10 seconds or 5 seconds of it. There's like every couple of uh, beats, there's like a little clink, clink, like a glints of kick of the tile, of the light, but just in one tile. It kind of goes with the music. And it wasn't preconceived. <laughs> we were not oh, that, interesting. We were, we were not that great. You know, so it just happened by in process of illumination, the scene, it offered, offered itself some magically, offered itself into like, oh, look at that. That's interesting what's happening. Why is it happening? Oh, it's happening because of the client. Okay, so, so how is he just took it down a little more? And, and basically refined it down further to the point that became a, a storytelling element. For people looking for something a little more on the news in variety, they can check out Fist Fight this Friday, which is a great one for all the Always Sunny fans out there. Charlie Day, who plays Charlie in Always Sunny, stars as a schoolteacher who wants to get another schoolteacher, played by Ice Cube, fired. Ice Cube then challenges Charlie to an after-school fight. It's the first feature for director Richie Keen, who has directed some classic Sunny episodes, including Mac Day, The Gang Misses the Boat, and my personal favorite, The Maureen Ponderosa Wedding Massacre. It's a great episode. Have any of you... Are you guys Sunny fans? Uh, I would say mildly, yes. It's sometimes sunny in Philadelphia for you. <laughs> Our contributor, Sophia Harvey, is interviewing Mr. Keene, and that interview should be out later this week. A movie that just premiered at Sundance is already coming out to theaters this week. It's called XX. It's a horror anthology. So this horror anthology genre has been picking up steam since the release of VHS, with each one of the following entries shifting focus on some subsect of genre or filmmaking. So last year's Holidays made its premiere at Tribeca Film Festival and had a short for every holiday. Tim League of Alamo Drafthouse, who we've talked about a bunch on the show, has put out two entries of the ABCs of Death anthologies, in which each short takes on a subject that begins with their respective letter of the alphabet. So XX, as the chromosome-heavy title infers, is a horror anthology featuring only female directors. These directors include Roxanne Benjamin, who has had a hand in all the VHS anthologies, Karen Kusama, who directed last year's Draft House hit, The Invitation, and the debut directorial effort of Annie Clark, more widely known as the musician St. Vincent. Oh, cool. Yeah. So we've got some upcoming grant deadlines. The ITVS digital open call ends on February 17th. ITVS provides up to $30,000 in research and development funding to help you take your original digital content idea to the pilot stage for distribution on public media. They are looking for proposals for digital series and development that have not yet begun principal production or for digital series of any length of number of episodes. They can be any genre. Proposals for the second season of a series won't be reviewed, however. It's important to note, and we've talked about this a lot, that this is not a grant. You'll receive funding in the form of a development agreement that assigns ITVS first-look rights over your project during the term of the contract. So you'll own the copyright and maintain creative, editorial, and financial control of your project, but ITVS retains the option for U.S. television broadcast rights for up to 90 days after they receive any required deliverables. On February 24th is the deadline for the American Muslim Storytellers Grant, 
this is kind of a cool one because San Francisco-based director Michael Morgenstern, who's contributed post to No Film School, is now contributing to the community in a different way. He's part of a team giving out grants ranging from one to $4,000 to filmmakers who are aiming to, quote, challenge existing depictions of Islam and Muslims with their work. Now, even if you're not a Muslim storyteller yourself, but you're interested in seeing more of these stories, you can help get these films made by supporting the Indiegogo campaign from which the fund will be generated, which also has a deadline of February 24th for contributions. The entries must be short films or projects involving video that celebrate or articulate the American Muslim experience in the U.S. Preference is given to projects that will be released before July 2017 and to projects created by Muslim Americans. Moving on to festival deadlines, the Nantucket Film Festival deadline is tomorrow, February 17th. This festival will take place June 21st to the 26th in Nantucket, Massachusetts, a lovely little island worth applying just to get yourself there. Um, the film festival was founded in 1996 and places a special focus on screenwriting. Of course, you can submit your film, but you can also submit a screenplay into the competition, which is cool. So Showtime Tony Cox screenplay competitions recognize emerging writers in four unique categories as the best from the pool of submissions each year. Finalists in each competition are read by prestigious juries, receive top industry recognition, and participate in a festival focused specifically on screenwriting that includes cash prizes for all competitions and a mentor's brunch with a prominent screenwriter. Past mentors include some little guys like Oliver Stone and David O. Russell. I love little guys. The Oregon International Film Festival has a deadline of February 18th. It takes place in September from the 16th to the 30th. What's cool about this festival is that it takes place actually in several different cities throughout Oregon. So screenings are in Portland, Eugene, and Bend, and a couple of other cities. And Oregon is beautiful. The people are awesome, and it's worth it. And you can say hi to our Nights and Weekends editor, V. Renee, when you're out in Eugene. And finally, the early bird deadline for Fantastic Fest is February 22nd. This is the can of genre films. Fantastic Fest is the largest genre film festival in the U.S. It specializes in horror, fantasy, sci-fi, action, and just plain fantastic movies from all around the world. It takes place in Austin, Texas, great city, from September 21st to 28th. And just how prestigious is this fest? Well, it held the world premieres of There Will Be Blood and Apocalypto, among others. Wow, I completely forgot that that's where that movie premiered. I That's one of my favorite films, There Will Be Blood. Yeah, and I think uh, the movie Colossal premiered there last year, which is... Uh, it's seen, coming out soon. Yeah, coming out soon. It's about Anne Hathaway turning into a kaiju, which is pretty cool. Um, I love kaijus. I love kayaking Jews. <laughs> A kaiju is actually like a monster, like Godzilla, guys. So I like little guys and big guys, too. Clearly, and tiny witches. This is my festival, not your guys. It's closely linked with Alamo Drafthouse, and the fest is held each year at their original flagship location on South Lamar in Austin, Texas. Just for the record, I have been to live kaiju big battles. Remember, like, I'm a closet li- nerd. Like real, real kaiju? <laughs> You've seen real kaiju real in real ones. life? But you know, they dress up in costumes and they get in a wrestling ring and they do this whole thing. Are you kaiju also thing. a furry? <laughs> oh. <laughs> really none of your business. <laughs> I took a leap there. So I actually wanted to give a quick update from Berlin All, which is wrapping up now after a week chock full of daring art house fair. Much of it from Europe because we all know that some of the most outside of the box filmmaking happens on that continent. That was so artsy. So artsy of me. Which you have to say in a German accent because Berlin All is the Berlin Film Festival in Germany. Yeah. 
One of the most buzzy films this year is being compared to the work of Pedro Almodovar. It's from a Chilean director, Sebastián Lalio, who previously directed Gloria. And he stunned Berlin all with this year with A Fantastic Woman, which is an intimate portrait of a transgender singer. Also generating some excitement is a film from I Am Not Your Negro director Raoul Peck, who's in Germany with a historical narrative, no, not about World War II, but about the young Karl Marx. And that's what the film's called. It sets the communist manifesto in the context of the Industrial Revolution. So we'd also like to give a quick shout out to a Berlin premiere called For Akeem, which was actually produced by a No Film School contributor, Ayabo Boyd. It's a documentary that quote, explores the cosmos of a black woman in St. Louis, Missouri, not far from Ferguson, where Michael Brown was shot in August 2014. It depicts her complicated life more in the style of a poignant feature than a social reportage, end quote. And I actually saw some stills from the documentary, and it's shot very much like a narrative. I couldn't tell. I was surprised to see that it was a documentary. So very interesting. While we're giving some shout outs, maybe some of you heard the episode I did with Sabah Foyleon and Damon Davis, who made Who Streets, and I saw it at Sundance. And that just got picked up by Magnolia Pictures. So congrats to them. What, what? And listen to that podcast if you haven't, because it is fucking tight, to say the least. I was just hoping that there would be a genre crossover film festival comes out. That's the Kaiju Film Festival. It's a mix of monster films and Jewish-themed content. And there's one furry <laughs> documentary in there. It can be like... What are we next... talking about? Berlin All? <laughs> <laughs> it can be the next version of our Make and Bacon Film Festival. Yeah, so send in your uh, sexual Kaiju videos. <laughs> your Jewish monster you films? You can tag Liz in those. I'm not going to have any part of that. But keep sending those bacon videos. So just to wrap things up here, Monday's podcast is our latest in a series of Sundance podcasts. Our last one uh, dealt with short filmmakers and what their experience was like getting their film into Sundance. This one is another roundtable, which focuses on breaking the algorithm of new media platforms. And I conducted it with a handful of short film directors that were at Sundance with the great production company called Super Deluxe. So that's basically, yeah. Um, So that's basically tips and uh, tricks on how to make your online content stand out from the rest. And it's it's really fun. So keep keep an ear out for it. Meanwhile, you can get links to all the opportunities and films we discussed on the show at the podcast post on nofilmschool.com, along with lots of other articles, exclusive interviews, and podcasts about the craft of filmmaking. Please search for the podcast by looking up No Film School on iTunes, where you can rate us and subscribe to hear all these Monday interview shows and Thursday Indie Film Weekly shows. And in the meantime, please stay in touch. I'm at Liz Film on Twitter. I'm at E.L. Booter on Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm at Jim underscore John underscore Jim. Jim, don't you know? And we're all at No Film School. See you next week. (laughs) 